Well, we are going to look once again at John chapter 13. Join me there. In your Bible is John chapter 13, where we are picking up where we left off last week in verses 12 through 17. John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. And the moments that immediately follow that dramatic scene when Jesus put on the uniform of a Gentile slave and literally humiliated himself in that culture by stooping down upon the floor to wash his disciples' dirty feet. It's an unprecedented act of humility in all human history where a superior condescended before his inferiors. But here doing it in the most demeaning and degrading of ways. John Calvin wrote that this reveals our Savior's soul. This is an act of selfless love that Jesus has for his disciples. Now, look at verse one because this is the driving verse The theme is love. The introduction, not only to Jesus washing his apostles' feet, but the introduction to the entire second half of John's gospel is verse one. He loved them. He loved his own to the end, to the telos, to the max. He loves to the fullest extent one can love. That is the the driving verse. That's the controlling theme for everything that follows through the end of this gospel. And so what we saw last week is that this passage is not really about foot washing at all, the physical act. Foot washing is merely the symbol, the living parable That Jesus chooses on this night to show his disciples. He wants to show them the length he will go in love for them. How far his love reaches. How deep his love for them is. Why now? Why this night? Because love, specifically a selfless love for one another, is what these apostles are going to need. It's what they are going to have to fight for if they are going to remain faithful to their gospel calling. Jesus is leaving. He's leaving them in a matter of hours. They're going to need to love one another if they're going to stay united in their gospel mission and be successful in their gospel work. This starts Jesus' long goodbye, his farewell address. It's a goodbye that starts in the upper room. It's going to move to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's going to take about five hours probably throughout this night from the time it starts in chapter 13 to when it ends In chapter 17, it won't take us five hours, by the way. But Jesus makes this abundantly clear throughout these hours and throughout this goodbye that the world is not going to respond kindly to their testimony. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 19. If, Jesus says, you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world would love you. 
There's a problem, though, that you face. I chose you out of this world, and thus you are not of the world. And because of this, the world is going to hate you. Look at verse 20. If they persecuted me, which they did, the world seeks to destroy Jesus' testimony. You see that throughout this final week. Discredit Jesus, stone him, arrest him. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Mark it, count on it. Turn over to chapter 17, starting in verse 11. Here's how Jesus ends this goodbye. He ends it with prayer, prayer to the Father for himself, for his apostles, for all those who would believe in him. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am no praise. I am no longer in the world. I'm readying to leave this world. I'm readying to come to you, Father, through the cross, through death. And yet they, my apostles, they are in the world. I'm leaving them behind. I'm not taking them with me. They're going to live in a hostile world. And so I have one request, Father. Holy Father, keep them. Watch over them, protect them, guard them in your name, according to your power, in your faithfulness. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them. And I guarded them, but I'm leaving them. It's gonna change now. I can't shield them like I shielded them in the past. And so, verse 13, I come to you. I need you, Father. They need you, Father. Verse 15, to what? To keep them, protect them from the evil one. This is how Jesus concludes this goodbye. It's in prayer for them, for the apostles. Broadening it out for us. Persecution will come against these men and it will come strong. The hostility of the world will only grow against them. And again, look back up to 1715. And according to Jesus here, it will be satanically inspired. That's why he prays, keep them from the evil one. Not just the world, but the evil one, Satan. Turn back to John 13. The question is this, how are these men going to be able to endure all of this? How are they going to stand firm and faithful, not only when attacked by man, but also threatened by Satan? We broadened this question out last week to us here as a church body. How are we at EBC going to reach this valley with the gospel while Christ is absent? While gospel hatred grows, while we spiral further into a post-Christian culture? How will we remain firm and faithful in our gospel mission? It will not be through programs. doesn't matter how great our Awana program is. It's not through programs. It's not through our creativity. It's not through our own ingenuity of how we can pull this off can bring it to even what we're dealing with even over the last year, year and a half, it will not be fighting for our religious freedoms, believe it or not. How are they gonna pull this off? How are we going to pull this off 
One word. Love. And specifically, Jesus says, a love for one another. Look at chapter 13, verse 34. This is what Jesus is driving towards. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Repeated, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this, by your love for one another. That's the call, that's the commandment. And the one another, by the way, it's fellow believers, primarily. Yes, we have a love for the unbeliever. Yes, we have a love for the world. That's not the love Jesus is talking about here. The love for the unbeliever is an overflow of our love for one another, fellow believers. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. So just take a look around. It's those sitting in this room. That's what the world needs. That is the testimony we must have. It starts with how we love each other here. Loving one another is the greatest apologetic we can offer this world. Our love for one another is the distinguishing mark that shows we belong to Christ. Doctrine is important. Theology is necessary. But that must overflow in love for each other here. It will be the distinguishing mark that Christ's gospel is true. It can transform us in the heart. This is why Jesus washes the apostles' feet. These men needed to see in a most visible and shocking and memorable way the love Christ has for them. They, we, need to see divine love on display. Why? Because Christ's humiliating, degrading, demeaning love is the model for our love for each other. His love is our model. It would have been so easy for Jesus to say back in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just a little bit more than that person loves you. We'd be like, amen, right? I can do that. No. He adds those words, even as I have loved you. And we're like, well, hold the phone. Right? You've just died for me. You've, you're sacrificing for me. That's the model of love? That's the commandment. His love is what we are to show and model. It's the very love he models as he washes his apostles' feet. So we began unpacking this passage by noting the Savior's posture. First of all, last week, the Savior's posture, that's in verses four and five. Jesus leaves his place of prominence at the Passover table, he undresses himself down to his undergarments. He then ties a towel around his shoulder. He finds a water basin and proceeds to take his apostles' feet in his hands and scrub them clean. Humble is too weak of a word to describe Jesus here. 
He's breaking every social barrier that existed in that culture. He's demeaning himself like no leader ever did before him. This is why Peter is appalled. Look at verse six. Appalled, Lord, do you wash my feet? Verse eight, never shall you wash my feet. I'm embarrassed for you, Jesus. Stop it. Peter's dismayed that his Lord would become his slave. All of that's by design. It sets the stage for the symbolic picture. The symbolic picture, we saw this last week, the foot washing here is a picture. It is a living parable of Christ's love for his own. It's a living picture of Christ's cosmic love for us that he would set aside the garments of his glory and take upon himself the rags of humanity. Jesus is showing his apostles by undressing what his incarnation will cost him. Look at verse three. That's why John makes the connection, verse three. Jesus, knowing that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, knowing his incarnation, knowing what it cost him, that's in his mind, that is why he lays aside his garments. Jesus' clothing change is a picture of his incarnation, his cosmic love. This is also a picture of his sacrificing love. His sacrificing love. What he would do in less than 12 hours on the cross. He will, verse four, lay aside. It's a phrase used throughout John's gospel for death. He lays aside his life. The good shepherd lays down, same word, lays down his life. Only to, verse 12, take it back. Again, that's resurrection. He lays down his life and he takes back his life. He resurrects from the dead. This is a picture of that. All by design. Third, Jesus was giving a picture of his redeeming love. Look at the middle of verse eight. His redeeming love. Jesus answered Peter. Peter rejects this. You're not washing my feet. I want nothing to do with this. Get up. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. This goes beyond your dirty feet, Peter. I'm giving you a picture of your heart being cleansed. This is the only way you will spend eternity with me. I need to wash you. It's a picture of atonement. It's a picture of payment for sin, redemption. This is a picture of the new covenant. That great promise of something only God can do. Only he can cleanse you from all your filthiness. God washes our heart through the cross of his son. This is a picture of that. To then that fourth symbol we see here of Christ's love. The foot washing is a picture of Christ's sanctifying love. His sanctifying love. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Once you've been bathed, 
by Christ's redeeming love, credited with Christ's perfect life, justified, declared righteous. Once that happens, you only need to be forgiven relationally between you and God. Forgiven judicially, God is judge. He declares you righteous, not guilty. But you need to be also forgiven daily, relationally, between you and your father. This is a spot cleaning. This is the foot washing. Again, verse one is that driving verse. Jesus loved his own in all of this way. Cosmic, sacrificing, redeeming, sanctified, Sanctifying, Jesus loved his own to the end, to the max, to the fullest extent. So all of that then is theology and action. This is all a picture of doctrine, the love of Christ. That brings us to this third hook now to hang our thoughts on in verse 12. This brings us to the implication. We've seen the theology. What's the implication? What's the reason Jesus washes his apostles' feet? This is now the selfless pattern. The selfless pattern. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Jesus is a good rabbi. He's making his apostles think. He's not just giving them the answer here. Do you know what I have done to you? And this now takes theology and moves it to application. All true theology demands application. This is now leading to what the action of the apostles needs to be, what the change needs to be, their obedience here. And so Jesus now is challenging these men to make sense of what they've just experienced. But the problem is the disciples are slow to grasp all these implications. One reason is because they've never seen or heard anything like this before. In fact, let's put this foot washing in a Jewish context. Jewish rabbis would often stress the need to be humble and to be loving and to be selfless makes sense. That's what's taught in the Old Testament. So they'd stress that. But always there was some kind of limitation attached to those virtues. Always a limitation. So here's an example of by one rabbi of the second century, Yehuda Hanasi. He was a model Jew for many second century. Many sought to imitate him. So what they write about him. He was so humble that he would do anything for others. But here's the limitation. He was so humble that he would do anything for others except relinquish his superior position. That went too far. It's the model rabbi of the day. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. He relinquishes his superior position. He bows before, kneels before his apostles. This is why the apostles are in shock. And you know they're in shock because not even Peter talks at this point. He always says something. But not here. He's quiet. 
Look at verse 13. Jesus helps them out a bit. You call me teacher and Lord. You call me teacher and Lord. These are indeed titles the apostles called Christ. Back in chapter one, Andrew and John say to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? Look at verse six here in chapter 13, verse six. Look at what Peter says. Lord, do you wash my feet? They called him teacher. They called him Lord. Each title is important. Each shows Christ's superiority, his dignity. Teacher is a confession of Jesus' leadership. They left all to follow their teacher. It's a term of respect. It emphasizes his authority over them. We live by your words. You're our authority. But notice the term Lord here. This takes Jesus' rabbinic authority as dignity to an entirely different level. This is not just dignity, this is deity. Deity. That's what the term Lord, for the most part, what the term Lord refers to throughout John's gospel. It's deity, God. Think of John chapter 6. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, because you're Lord, you have words of eternal life. You alone can give life, what only God can give. You are Lord. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You share God's holiness. That's what Lord means. Share his deity, his glory. Think of the once blind man in John chapter 9, his confession. Lord, I believe you're the Messiah. But even more than that, I believe that you share the deity of God, which is why the blind man falls down and worships him. I believe you, Lord, and I'm worshiping you. Gives to Jesus what's reserved for God alone. You know how the Gospel of John ends. All moves to that great confession by Thomas. My... Lord and my God. The word here is kurios. It's a title used over 6,000 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, over 6,000 times to refer to Yahweh himself. Self-sufficient, transcendent God. They called him Lord. Notice... Jesus' words as he continues, and Jesus accepts those titles. And you are right, Jesus says. You are right. You've called me teacher. You've called me Lord, God, deity. You are right, for so I am. I do possess the dignity of teacher. I possess the deity of Lord. You're right. And so understand, Jesus says, here's the transition Jesus decides to make the application for them. Your confession about me to be teacher and Lord, your confession about me necessitates imitation of me. Your confession of me necessitates imitation of me. There's no way around this. Continue verse 14. If I then... The Lord and teacher, and just notice now, Jesus inverts the two titles. 
He calls himself teacher and Lord now. He calls himself Lord and teacher. Why? Because he's drawing their attention to his divine lordship, his deity. It's a chiasm. It's pointing to Lord, teacher, and Lord, Lord, and teacher. He's emphasizing his deity. It's a greater to lesser logic to how much more application if I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet. Fill in the symbolism. If I, eternal God, in love, left the glories of heaven for you, shows you the cosmic love. If I, the self-sufficient Lord, God, in love, lay aside my life for you, If I, the Son of God, in love endure my Father's wrath for you, if I, the Holy God, in love continually offer forgiveness to you daily, on that basis, your confession of me necessitates imitation of me. Continue verse 14. You also then have a responsibility to wash one another's feet. Not the physical act of washing. Again, that's not the point here. Now you have the responsibility to exhibit the same selfless love they have just seen Jesus display. The same love he will command us to show one another in verses 34 and 35. Look at verse 15. I gave you an example All of that's a a pattern. That's what the word means, a pattern. And not so much the external act. It's more of a pattern, the, the inner attitude of love they've just seen. All of this is an example for you. All of this is a pattern that you should do as I did to you. how different Christ's gospel is from every other gospel. While the Greeks and Romans prize courage, strength and military prowess, earthly wisdom, Jesus values self-sacrifice. He values serving, demeaning, humiliating love. This is why what you find throughout the New Testament is a call to love one another always based upon Christ's love for us. That's the foundation that drives our love. It's the model of our love. Think of Philippians chapter two. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's the very opposite of love, right? But with humility of mind, a love for others, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's so easy to do, isn't it? So easy. No, it's not our tendency. We know that. We like to be the center of attention. We like our own thoughts to be known. Verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others And quite frankly, we love it when this command is lived out by others, don't we? 
have this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus. Here's the model. Here's the model. It's not just show humility like the person next to you. It's show the humility, the love, the demeaning love that Christ showed when he what? Left heaven for earth. Who, although he existed, verse six, in the form of God, though he was Lord, deity, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he empties himself, empties himself into slavery, into servanthood taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. That's what Jesus' foot washing pictured. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the self-sacrificing love, redeeming love, even death on a cross. It's all application. The theology of incarnation, the theology of Christ's love for us leads to implication. And it is this, since Jesus left heaven for us and since Jesus went to the cross for us, then we must let go of our likes and our wants and our prerogatives and our pet peeves in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think this lesson stuck with John. This is why he repeats himself in 1 John 4. Beloved, notice the if, beloved, if God so loved us, and we will say he did, right? It's not a question. Yes, he did. If God so loved us, which he did and does, the necessary corollary is this. We also ought to love one another. To withhold love from our brothers and sisters in Christ is the height of arrogance. One commentator put it this way. If he has acted thus, stooping in love to serve us by washing us through his cross, how much more ought we be ready to wash the feet, show his love of even the lowest and meanest of his followers? And then this statement, conversely, to refuse to do so through pride is to proclaim ourselves superior to Jesus our master, which is unthinkable. And yet that is exactly what we do every time we refuse to extend love to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. It's what we do when we break fellowship with one another based upon our own personal wants, preferences. It's what we do when we raise ourselves above one another and regard ourselves as more important. When we bicker and fight, we turn on one another, find fault with one another, we do the unthinkable. We proclaim ourselves superior to Jesus, our master. It's the height of arrogance. Why is this so unthinkable? Because of verse 16, truly, truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, pay special attention to what I'm about to tell you. 
by the way here, this is the 18th time John records Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you. What follows in verse 16 carries with it the same way as the other truly, truly statements. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, if he hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. All those truly, truly statements are about initial salvation. Coming to Jesus and saving faith, initial salvation. But now Jesus uses a truly, truly statement to speak about our sanctification. Our sanctification is no less weighty to Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. We agree with that. We know that. Nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. In other words, if our king can humiliate himself in love for us, so can his subjects. So can his slaves, to use Jesus' words. Let's bring it back to the theme that we have looked at this year, our identity in Christ. If our identity in Christ is a slave of Christ, which it is, then we must, we must imitate his love, his love for us. We must love one another. Now, just a side note here. There are some denominations that see physical foot washing as an ordinance that the church does alongside baptism, Lord's Supper. I don't think, though, that's what Jesus is calling the church to do. I don't think this is a third ordinance. It's not enough to break fellowship over. But I don't think this is what Jesus is driving at. Those denominations obviously point back to this. For one, we've looked at it. Foot washing is not the primary focus of the passage. Love is. Second, back in verse 15, you have that word example. Again, that's more of the inner attitude, not the external act. And then third, we don't see the apostles ever commanding foot washing throughout Acts, throughout the epistles. So I don't think this is an ordinance. This goes far beyond foot washing, far beyond. It goes to what's more difficult, isn't it? Daily love, one another, sacrificing love. I think Peter nails it. No doubt thinking back to this night, when he writes this, clothe yourselves, Peter's thinking of Jesus, taking the, the clothes, the uniform of a slave, clothe yourselves with what? With humility, humble love, and then makes that connection toward one another. He's looking back on this night, he's thinking of the final farewell. And so we need to ask ourselves the same question Jesus asked his apostles in verse 15. Do we see, do we see the spiritual significance of what Jesus has just done on this night? Do we see it? 
Do we feel the weight of Jesus's humiliating love? Do we see how his demeaning love applies to us? Let's make it very personal. Who will you commit to show humble love to? What believer, what person in this room Have a name in mind and then ask yourself how. How will you do this? How will you follow the model of Jesus? Verse 16, a slave is not greater than his master. Leads into verse 17 here. And the certain promise, the certain promise Christ knows how hard this is going to be for his apostles to fulfill once he leaves them. He knows that. This group is as different as you can get. There are men here from different social stratas. Some are unknown fishermen. Some, at least one, are known by the high priest family. Different stratas. This is a group of men from different religious commitments. Matthew has sold his Jewish heritage to Rome, become a tax collector. Peter's a devout Jew. These are men from different political aisles. Simon was a zealot. He would have gladly stabbed a Roman soldier in the back. Didn't think twice, wouldn't think twice. He's the alt-right And then there's Simon, who works for Rome. He's the far left. Two aisles. It's easy to love people who are like us, isn't it? That's easy. It's easy to love people who agree with us and show us love. Easy. That's not necessarily Christian love. Christian love loves the unlovely. Christian love loves those hard to love, different from us, loves those who are different from us. That's the kind of love Jesus shows on this night. Notice he washes his deniers' feet. He washes Peter's feet. In verse 38, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. He washes his denier's feet. But then look at verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into Judas. He washes his betrayer's feet. He washes Judas's feet. You think you have people in your life that are hard to love. Judas is indwelt by Satan in the matter of minutes. It's difficult to show a love for others in a selfless way, which is why Jesus then adds the promise of verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed. You're favored by God. You're rewarded by God if, notice the if, if there's a special blessing for the person who obeys Jesus's command here, follows his example, if you do them, if you love like I love. Jesus is assuring them this selfless love will be worth the cost. What are the blessings Jesus has in mind? You will be blessed. What are the blessings? 
He will explain these throughout this night. Let's just trace them briefly. First, if you selflessly love one another, you will be blessed with a faithful testimony. A faithful testimony. Verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. A faithful testimony is a blessing from God. Second, if we love one another, we will be blessed with Christian joy. Christian joy. Drop back or drop down to verse, chapter 15, verse 9. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me and I have also loved you, again, the model is Christ's love. Just as I have loved you, abide in my love. Let my love affect your love. Let my love be the pattern for your love. Abide in my love. Keep my commandments, verse 10. What commandment? Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. So abide in my love. By loving one another, we abide in Christ's love for us. We put Christ's love on display. It surrounds us. It controls us. What's the effect of this? Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, I've given you these commands, I've given you this model, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. When we love others, Christ fills us with his joy. And notice that your joy may be what? Full, full joy. Despite everything the world tells us, despite everything our flesh tells us, full joy does not come from serving self. It never will. It never has. Full joy comes from loving others. When we love one another, we're filled with Christian, Christ's joy. Which Jesus then follows with a third blessing promised to those who selflessly love one another. Blessing number three here. You will be made fruitful for God's glory. You will be made fruitful for God's glory. Stay in chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He's going to bookend this now. In verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. And it's the controlling theme throughout this whole farewell discourse. Love one another, verse 12. Love one another, verse 17. But there's a promise now right in the middle Right in the middle. Verse 16, I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. When we love one another, God makes us fruitful for his glory. When we love one another, we will be used by God. We will be used by God for his gospel work. Who do you think God is going to use for his gospel work? The, the sheep that bite and devour one another? You think that's a great testimony? Or the sheep who love one another? It's application. If, if your testimony is hidden, 
If your joy is lacking, if your fruitfulness is low, take a serious evaluation of your love for one another. J.C. Ryle writes this, we ought to rejoice in doing kindnesses, even in little things. We ought to count it a pleasure to lessen sorrow and multiply joy, even when it costs us some self-sacrifice and self-denial. We should be glad to do it. This was the mind of the master, and this is the ruling principle of his conduct upon earth. Christians must never be ashamed of doing anything that Christ has done. The lesson is one of which we all need to be reminded. We are all too apt to dislike any work which seems to entail trouble, self-denial, and going down to our inferiors. We are only too ready to assign such work to others. And then to excuse ourselves saying this, it's not our way. When feelings of this kind arise within us, we shall find it good to remember our Lord's words in this passage no less than our Lord's example. Why? Because the cost of selfless love is well worth the reward. The certain blessings promised from God. So what is to characterize every believer as we await our Savior's return? What will keep us faithful in our gospel work? What will make this Church effective in our gospel outreach throughout this valley? What will keep us unified in our gospel ministry? Three words, love one another. And it's defined here as nothing less than the love that Christ has for us. Look back to verse 15. I gave you an example, Jesus says. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Father, forgive us for our selfishness and forgive us for our self-love. It is too much. It's based upon pride. Forgive us, Lord, for our arrogance And I pray that you would grow our love for you and grow our cherishing of your love for us, which overflows and it can't help but overflow in our love for one another. Lord, we love right doctrine. We love theology. We love your word. May we love each other. And actively show that, feel that. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.